Lord, first of all, we are just so uh, grateful, beyond grateful, for uh, the progress that Brandon is making uh, with Set Free Ministries. Um, we, we've known him many, many years, and we've seen his ups and downs, and he was as down, as uh, more down than we have ever seen him, and, and, and this is just a remarkable turnaround. And we thank you for your um, immeasurable grace that's been expended towards Brandon uh, and your mercy for him. And it's just a reminder that this is the same grace and the same mercy that has been made available to us all. Um, we thank you for your marvelous diversity of your creation in the landscapes that we see, the, the, the climates, the animals, the people. We all are all part of your special creation. Help us to remember that God so loved the world. And we are called to do the same. So help us love those who don't seem all that lovable. Help us love those who actually go out of the way to call us names or accuse us of vile things or whatever it may be. Lord, just help us to love you better and love our neighbors better. We thank you for the, the text that we get to uh, review this morning, and I pray that we find some, some meaningful application for it in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So in its really most basic form, Ephesians is really a book of two halves. Uh, Al's text last week was pretty much the end of the first half, and so I'm going to start today with the start of the second half, kind of. It's kind of the start of the second half. Um, the first half was Paul's reminder to the church, and not just the church, not just the Christians in Ephesus, but to all churches and all Christians at all times, in all places, that we, as followers of Christ, are remarkably and unbelievably blessed that God has chosen to save us. Our redemption, our forgiveness of sins, the salvation that we enjoy from the consequences of our sin, it is all grace. It's all God's grace. Salvation is all about God choosing to offer redemption to his creation. And it was made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, there, there is this incredibly detailed and perfectly executed plan that took over thousands of years, many, many generations for God's plan to be fulfilled, and it was all for our benefit. We are immeasurably blessed. And in various places and, and in various ways throughout that first half, uh, Paul stresses this point as often as he can. He refers to the grace that has been lavished on us. It's not the grace that God grudgingly metered out well, you've hit your limit for this month. You have to wait till next month. It's not this grace that God unenthusically offered, um, but he lavished extravagantly on us. Paul refers to the immeasurable riches of God's grace in kindness towards us. And the focus there seems to be on immeasurable. It is, it is beyond our ability to measure. It does not run out. So in the, in the first half, Paul kind of lays out the, the orthodoxy of salvation. He wants to ensure that the Christians, the church, everywhere, we have the foundation of right beliefs. We have the proper understanding of salvation. So as best we're able, we can begin to understand just what God has done for us and how remarkable that whole thing is. Uh, in, in fact, in the opening uh, of chapter 1, Paul says that upon accepting this incredible blessing of salvation, he, he prays that we would realize, we would experience, we would feel, we would live with this new hope that we would begin to have some understanding of the riches that have been provided for us, that we would experience and learn to utilize or depend on God's power within us. 
I mean, in short, he prays that we would learn how to live this new life with all this, this new creation that we have become. It's an altogether different life. And this is only made possible, he says, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. This is the doctrine of salvation. Orthodoxy. And that's what leads to new life. So having made that argument in the first half, uh, he's given this reminder to the saints. Now in the second half, in part two, he sets about to remind them, remind us, explain or encourage us that having a solid orthodox belief, having a right understanding of salvation that leads to new life, ought to lead to a new way of living. It ought to make a change in us. I mean, even back in the opening, early opening comments of chapter 1, Paul signals this change. He kind of hints that this change is going to come. This new perspective, he says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So, Paul says, here's a, here's a hint of what's to come. Once you've received the inheritance, once you've accepted God's gift of salvation, you have a new hope. You have a new purpose. And this hope, this purpose, ought to cause you to live in such a way that God is glorified. So the second half of Ephesians is, is focused on right living as a logical and necessary response or outcome to salvation. Paul's going to go into the details, the uncomfortable details, as we'll see, about daily living and how the blessing of salvation ought to influence how we live. But notice the way he lays this out, the doctrine part comes first. You have to have the understanding first. Salvation is the gift of grace. You can't earn it. This right understanding leads us to living a life that's more worthy of God's grace and more glorifying to God. But whatever good works we do, either before salvation or after, don't count towards our salvation. It's all grace. Rather, what Paul explains is the, the right living or orthopraxy, the official term, it really is kind of a cause and effect situation. Right belief leads to right living. It's a call and response. God has called us out of sin and death, and we respond by living a life worthy of that calling. So Paul stresses God's blessing towards us and then our response to it. We have been blessed so that we may be a blessing. Does that sound familiar? I mean, think about way back, way back in, in Genesis. Remember Abraham had that covenant with God and God said, you are going to be blessed and through you, all the other nations of the earth are going to be blessed. So that pattern that, that was established way back in Genesis is the same pattern that holds true today. We are going to be blessed as follower, followers of Christ so that we may be a blessing to other people. So Paul launches into these life lessons for the believer here in the second half. But first he writes what amounts to is kind of a short transitional section. That's where we are today. The short transitional section that helps us kind of pivot from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, um, which is why Paul starts the second half of the book with, for this reason. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So even as Paul is about to launch into kind of this broader discussion about how we are to live a Christian life, he kind of prefaces it by saying, yeah, you can't do this by yourself. This is going to be kind of hard. You're going to need some help. You're going to need the strength and the power of the Spirit. You're going to need to rely on, depend on, the orthodoxy, the right understanding of why you're doing it to begin with. And he bows his knee in prayer to pray for those things for the church. But let's back up just a second. He starts with, for this reason, which means that this is kind of a culmination or a continuation of something he started before, but we actually have to go back a little ways to get to what that reason was. Um, if you remember, Al's text last week started for this reason also, and then Paul got sidetracked. I think Al referred to it as a parenthetical. There's this kind of longer section um, that Paul goes off into a rabbit trail where briefly he explained the mystery of salvation. That mystery is that it's now available to all Jews and to all Gentiles and that this was always God's plan. What was planned but concealed throughout the Old Testament is now fulfilled and revealed in the New Testament. The mystery has been solved through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. I mean, this was a worthwhile aside. This is important for Paul to point this out, but it didn't really address the for this reason part. So we have to go back just a little bit farther. At the end of chapter 2, this is where Paul actually goes back to for this reason. He says in verse 19, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So Paul is describing this uh, change that takes place, this transformation that occurs within us from post-conversion or or post-salvation. By accepting God's gift of salvation as an individual, and we are all called to make an individual decision about this, He says, once you make that decision, you're now joined in with the company of fellow citizens and saints. You are now an individual member, but you're part of the collective household of God. So this is both a me and us kind of arrangement. I mean, in our day, we're really good at focusing on the me part and forgetting about the us part. But this makes it clear, this whole structure is being built on and around Jesus. We're being built into a dwelling place for God, both individually and collectively. We're going to talk more about the role of the church next week. What Paul's describing here is really quite a transformation. I mean, most of us can probably think back to a time before we were saved by God's grace, and we might remember how far removed we were from anything close to sainthood. We were not mistaken for a member of the household of God. People did not confuse us with the temple for the spirit of God. I mean, that was decidedly not how we were known. But salvation has brought about forgiveness of sins. It has led to God seeing us, 
considering us sinless and saint-like and then giving us time to move into that. To develop into saints. To develop into members of the household of God. So as Paul's writing this, I think he rightly understands that this transformation is not a flip of a switch. We accept God's gift of grace, but there's still this old man, this old nature. There's still the devil and all his little helpers, all trying to lead us astray from the decision that we have made. And so Paul says, for this reason, to help in this transition, I bow my knee to pray. And in that, Paul, I think, models his own humility for one thing. He prays for our humility, I think. And then he kind of makes it okay to admit that we struggle with holiness. I have to bow my knee and ask for help for this. This does not come naturally. This is not easy. The process of sanctification, becoming Christ-like, can be humbling. I mean, it's not a bumper sticker, but I think maybe it ought to be. Orthopraxy is hard. (laughs) I mean, trying to live a life based on and consistent with our beliefs is hard. Paul knows that we're going to need help, but Paul also knows from whence that help will come. So he prays. And he starts with, I bow, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom all families are named in heaven and earth. Now I think the idea here is not that there are these angelic families that look a lot like ours. You know, they're up there and we're down here. I don't think that's Paul's point because there are other texts that say angels are an altogether different kind of being. But the idea here is that uh, he's giving us this sense of universality, that what he's about to say applies to all families, at all places, for all times, because God is the creator. He is the sovereign. He is the everlasting one. He is the father of everybody. He was the father of the Hebrews in Genesis. He is the father of the Gentiles in Ephesus. He's the father of proselytes in Washington. So Paul's audience here is not limited to just the Christians in Ephesus, but to all Jesus-believing Jews and all Jesus-believing Gentiles. Anybody that that calls on the name of Christ. Again, we would do well to remember this. We live in, in, in a time where extraordinary efforts are being made to create extreme division among people based on race, based on ethnicity, based on gender, political affiliation, choice of gum flavor. I mean, we're finding all kinds of stupid reasons to be at odds with other people. Here's a reminder for us. Our God is the Father of all. His love extends to us all. His grace and mercy is available to us all. And his grace and mercy, once understood, is kind of shocking. We're not that forgiving. We're not that gracious. We're not that kind. But God is. And this continual outpouring of grace and kindness, the riches of his glory, Paul says, well, there's just nothing that compares. And this is the value of orthodoxy. It's why Paul spent the first half of the book trying to get us to understand what it is we believe. So we know what our faith, we know what our lives are being built on. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's where it starts. Everything else is built off of that. It's coming to terms with what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. And not only has God, from the very beginning, established and implemented this plan of salvation, 
which was concealed and then revealed through Jesus, but he calls us to a new life. And then he equips us and he empowers us to live this new life, to live to a higher calling. So Paul goes on to, he prays to the Father and he prays for four things in this text. The first thing he prays for is strength. Strength which comes from the Spirit. Now, most of us will know and we will admit that it's, it's the presence of the Spirit that really is the, um, the evidence of our salvation. We should be able to see in other people. But he also tells us that it's the Spirit that, require, that is required to enable us to live a Christian life. We need that extra help. So Paul prays that we'll be strengthened with power through the Spirit. And that sounds great. Who doesn't want that? Right? We, we know that, that strength is good. Who doesn't want to be strengthened? You know, I read somewhere not long ago that Americans pay over $5 billion a year for gym memberships. $5 billion a year with the express purpose of being strengthened, you know, buying workout clothes once in a while, but mostly strengthened. We pay a lot of money. So we understand that strong is good. It's good for us physically. Surely it's good for us spiritually as well. We want to get stronger. We want to get, we want to get better, which is really all Paul cares about. He specifically refers to strengthening our inner being here to make us stronger spiritually, to build up our faith. And we will need strength powered by the Spirit, provided by the Spirit, to live a life of orthopraxy in the face of an unorthodox culture. The culture does not share our foundation of faith. We need to be strong. You remember that Ephesus was known for its rampant occult practices. Living as a Jesus follower at that time was not easy. They needed strength then just as we need it now. We need strength to live according to God's morality and not man's. We need strength to know when God's commands are to be obeyed rather than man's. We need strength to stand up for what God says is good and strength to stand up against what God says is bad. We need strength to stay consistent on our own spiritual growth and our own prayer time and and Bible time. We need strength to allow the Spirit of God to move in us and to change us. Sometimes we're stronger fighting against it. We need strength to learn, that, to learn the things that God loves and hate the things that God hates and then to make the choices to live accordingly. We need strength to stick out our necks every once in a while and talk about Jesus with a friend or a family worker, a friend or a family or co-worker. I mean, this is not a small ask. And this is one of four that Paul prays for for the church. His second prayer request is for us to have a deeper relationship with Christ. And he uses a number of words, uh, phrases to help us understand. He wants us to get this picture of what this deeper relationship looks like. And he uses dwell and grounded and rooted. Now the word dwell here has the idea of kind of being settled in. You know, it's like the take your shoes off and make yourself at home. Take your coat off and stay a while, people used to say. It's, it's feeling comfortable. It's, it's being at home. May Christ dwell in your hearts. So the idea is for, is for us to have a, a comfort, to have an ease with Jesus so that we don't treat him like a stranger. Oh, it's Thursday. Jesus is coming over. Clean up. But he, he's welcome. 
And more often than not, that, that sense of welcome, that sense of ease, is a function of time and effort, like every other relationship that we have. We are more comfortable with people we spend more time with, generally speaking. We know something about them. They know something about us. You know, we can talk about things on, on a different level. It's an investment in time which leads to a deeper relationship. And that deeper relationship extends, expands our faith. And that's how it works with Jesus also. The greater our faith in, the more comfortable we become with Jesus, the more personal he becomes for us. Paul then uses the term rooted. And most of us around here know how plants work. Right? The, the, the deeper and stronger the root system, the healthier the plant tends to be. Trees uh, that are, subject, are in areas that are subjected to high winds on a regular basis tend to have deeper roots that help them stay erect and upright and strong and growing. And Paul also uses the architectural term grounded. This is the idea of the cornerstone or the foundation upon which a building is erected. And generally speaking, the taller the building, the deeper, thicker, wider the foundation needs to be. So Paul prays for depth in our relationship with Christ, that it, that is comfortable, that is personal, so that we know we're comfortable in knowing that Christ dwells in us, so that we are good hosts. We strive to make him welcome and comfortable. The relationship is deep and meaningful, and it's built on the solid ground of orthodoxy, on mutual love, Paul says. And at this point, as I was going through this, you know, it, it, it called, called to mind that as Paul's writing through this, this is all stuff he knows from personal experience. You know, being a follower of Christ was not without its challenges for Paul. At the point at which he's writing these letters from prison, he's been threatened, arrested, beaten, derided, backstabbed, abandoned, abused, mocked, mobbed, impugned, imprisoned, tried, and shipwrecked. And I probably left a few things out. And he is still writing letters of encouragement and support, teaching fellow Jesus followers. It's, it's his experience. Paul, Paul prays for strength for the church, strength that leads to depth, because he has needed it himself. He has relied on it. And it has not failed him. That's what he's praying for for us. And somewhere for Paul in that process of living a life worthy of his calling and being persecuted for it, Paul has come to understand and experience exactly what it is he's praying for for us. He had strength that grew over time, and his faith grew as a result. And as a consequence of Paul's life and its many challenges, Paul also grew in his understanding of the scale and scope of Christ's love. And he prays that we would begin to understand that also. That's the third thing he prays for. He prays to have, for us to have the strength to comprehend with all the saints the, the ubiquity, the, the omnipresence, the completely enveloping scope and scale of Christ's love for us. And he describes it in multidimensional terms. He wants us to understand that, that Christ's love is, is almost immeasurable. He talks about it in terms of breadth and length and height and depth. It's everywhere. He's telling us that Christ's love is inescapable. From the bottom of the ocean to the farthest reaches of the galaxy, God loves us. 
Christ loves us. We need to understand the scope of it. I just finished reading a book called The Return of the God Hypothesis on the deck overlooking the sand dunes in the ocean. I read this book called The Return of the God Hypothesis. It was written by Stephen Meyer. It is kind of a heady book a little bit. Um, But Stephen Meyer goes into the history of science and faith, and he describes how they are not and have never been at odds or opposed to each other. It's just presented that way. Um, But then he goes into great detail, minutia kind of detail, to explain how the more we learn from science, the more it points to a creator. The more we learn, the more questions it raises that science cannot answer. And he discusses it in biological terms, and he talks about the cosmology, and he talks about physics, and, and string theory, and quarks, and all kinds of cool, weird stuff. But it's all to make the argument that the physical makeup and the fine-tuning of the universe all indicates that it was designed and made for humans. In the beginning, God created with us in mind. I mean, that's a remarkable act of love. You know what's even more better indicator of God's love for us? That he died for us in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm not sure there's a better indicator or measure of love than that kind of sacrifice. So Paul prays for us that we would see this this love, and it's it's so big and it's so vast, and it can be hard to understand especially as we begin to gain an awareness of just how little we deserve it. We are not worthy of that kind of love and sacrifice. And yet, there it is, everywhere, inescapable. Paul prays that we would begin to comprehend that. In Warren Wiersbe's commentary on this text, he suggests that he likes the idea of, of, rather than the word comprehend, we use the word apprehend. He says they both have the idea of coming to terms with something, grasping something, getting hold of a concept or an idea, but apprehend suggests grasping something personally, making it our own. So Paul wants us to know Christ's love. He wants us to experience it, to feel it, to taste it to see it, to absorb it personally, to understand it doesn't matter how much we grow to love Jesus, he still loves us more. He loved us first. He proved his love for us by dying in our place. And and the, 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 the scale and the scope of Christ's love is beyond our knowledge. But we can get closer to it. And we should. That should be a goal for us to grow deeper Finally, Paul prays for us to be filled with the fullness of God. Now, in one sense, I think this is kind of a summation, uh, the the accumulation of of all the things that Paul has just prayed for. You know, the fullness of God would give us strength, and it would give us depth, and it would give us understanding. But I I think Paul's really praying for a little more than that here. Um, You know the old saying, nature abhors a vacuum? Well, as we start transitioning from sinner to saint, as we start becoming more Christ-like, there are things about our old nature which are going to need to go away. 
We've got old habits that we need to kick. We've got old patterns that we need to break. We have old ways of thinking that are going to need to be changed or outright eliminated. And I think Paul is praying here that that space, however that works in our being, our ways of thinking or how we use our time or how we spend our money, whatever it is, those things would be replaced by the things of God. The fullness of God. Rather than whatever the cultural mandates are at the moment, whatever the world tells us is important for us, we would be filled with the fullness of God. Now, even in a church setting, um, this can be a challenge for us because we often look at other Christians and we think, well, I'm better than those people. Uh, I'm more holy than they are. You know, I'm not going to judge, but let me just judge them for a minute here. Uh, Let me comment on their unchristlikeness just for a minute Um, because I'm pretty sure I'm better than that. Um, but other Christians are not the standard by which we measure faith. The standard that we are to aspire to, the standard we are called to, is holiness. It is Christ-likeness. It is the fullness of God. We're responsible to that standard, not whatever else we might want to use to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. I mean, if we're going to set a standard for ourselves... It's going to be here, while everybody else's standard, we said, is here. They fail. We clear it easily. So this prayer, this teaching that Paul lays out here, is this transitional section, all to set us up for what's going to come next, this how to live a Christian life teaching. Paul is helping us transition from this solid understanding of the gospel to the application of the gospel. In fact, I'm going to give you a sneak peek for our text next week. You ready? I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And at this point, we all go, (gasps) live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you're going to talk the talk, You better walk the walk. Paul's fixing to go here from solid theological teaching to straight-up meddling. (laughs) He's going to go on to talk about the church. He's going to talk about the unity of the saints. He's going to talk about living with purity and uprightness, successful relationships. He's got all kinds of ways to tweak our noses and offend our delicate and woke sensibilities. And he knows we're going to need help to make the necessary adjustments. Which is what Paul prays for here. Paul leads into this praying for us. For all these things. And then he he finishes off this transitional section. I I almost think as I was was thinking through this, I thought, oh, Paul's writing this, and he has to know. People are going to read this and go, man... That seems like a pretty high bar. And he gets to the end of that section and he thinks, okay, lest they start to feel overwhelmed and incapable, let me wrap this all up in context for them. And he ends with these last two verses. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So context again, Paul's making it clear that organizing living a Christian life is based on Christian beliefs, and it's not always easy. It is better, 
it's more rewarding. It is temporally and eternally more satisfying, but it's not easy. And in this transition section, he reminds us of, of why we are to even attempt this task, because Christ loved us enough to die for us. And then to remind us that as we attempt to become more Christ-like in response, that we're not alone. We're not without help. He started off this section by bowing his knees to the Father, and then he closes out this prayer by returning to the Father. He says, to him who is able. And this first phrase is remarkable. To him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. This is, this is important. This is foundational. This is key for us understanding this whole next couple of chapters in Ephesians. Because Paul does not say, to him who is able to do pretty much what we ask. He does not say, to him who is able to do more than we ask. He does not say, to him who is able to do far more than we ask. He says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. This is the greatness of God. This is the multidimensional love of Christ, the breadth, the length, the height, and depth. I mean, knowing that he's calling us to Christ-likeness, and we are fraught with failure at every turn, knowing that we are hypocritical and sinful and arrogant and judgy and selfish people who are doomed to commit failure after failure and sin after sin, even as we're trying to align ourselves with our, our life, with our beliefs, our merciful Father says, Look, I have provided for your redemption. I'm going to help you along the path to sanctification as well. I've given you power at your disposal. My spirit is with you to guide and and direct and correct as needed. In fact, I'm helping you in ways you haven't even asked for. I'm helping you in ways you haven't thought of. I'm helping you in ways you probably won't know until we meet face to face. And you'll notice here, it says that this power is at work within us individually because salvation is personal. We have to accept it or reject it on our own. But God's glory is to be found in the individual and in the collective gathering of the saints. To him be glory in the church. Now, even though we've done a pretty good job of messing up the church... We're going to talk about this more next week. God's glory is to be found in the church. We are the bride of Christ. So as we go out of here, we go out into our weeks to face challenges that are common to us all, work, marriage, kids, mortgages, to mask or not to mask, that is the question. But we're also going to face all of those challenges and doing them in the way that Christ wants us to do them. It's going to be challenging. You're going to have moments of of doubt and uncertainty. But could there be a better motivator than to remember that our sacrifice of loving our neighbor is because Christ loved us and died for us? And regardless of our own feelings of insecurity about our faith positions on things or, or doubt on some things or even our possible ineptitude, the Holy Spirit is with us. The Holy Spirit is in us. And the Holy Spirit is quite secure in his faith position. There is no doubt. The Holy Spirit is completely ept. 
We are called to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, but our gracious Father lavishes on us grace and kindness. He gives us all the tools we need to do what he asks us to do. And I pray that we may continue to grow in our understanding of the scale and scope of his love for us and that we respond accordingly. Let's pray. Father, in, in, in many ways, this is kind of a, an overwhelming text. There is so much for us here. We could spend many, many Sundays, many, many hours contemplating, thinking through, trying to come to terms with all that is laid out here. And it still wouldn't be enough. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us, that you have done all these things on our behalf for, for people that haven't deserved it and people that will never deserve it. But, love, Father, your, your love for us is so great that you have done all this for us anyway, in spite of us. It is beyond comprehension. But I, but I pray that as we go forward that that serves to motivate us, that serves to inspire us, to, to, to love you more deeply, to learn more about you, to uh, love our neighbor in, in ways that we've never thought of, um, Lord, I just pray that we, we are all open to the leading and prompting of the Holy Spirit throughout this week. We know we live in a culture that is hurting. We know there are, there are fewer people who claim to be Christians who, who attend church, fewer people than at any time that has been recorded. There's a great need for people to hear the love of Christ. So, Lord, use us. Help us be open to your prompting. Help, help us be open to your leading. And may whatever insecurities, whatever doubts, whatever fears we may have, Lord, just help those be erased and overcome by the power of the Spirit in us.